Hey everybody, this is Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, I know I was away last week. My apologies. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've been dealing with a lot of change as far as my career is concerned. Um, I was also dealing with the loss of a family pet, uh, a cat. Her name's Patches, but she was in the family for almost 20 years. Um, so that really sucked, but she did live a very long and happy life. So that's always comforting. But anyways, I was thinking if there's something that happens in the future where I'm going to be missing a week for whatever reason, I can always put it up on the Instagram. I thought about doing that this time, but I'm honestly, <laughs> I'm not sure how many people look at it. Uh, but that's what I'll do next time going forward. Uh, so if you ever don't see an episode up and you're wondering what's going on, just head over to the Instagram and I will be sure to post something. But anyways, this week F is for farm and we are going across the pond for the White House farm murders. It's a bit of a whodunit with family feuds, fumbled crime scenes, and a level of violence that the community was not used to dealing with. Ralph Neville Bamber, who just went by Neville, was born June 8, 1924. He was 61 the time that this case takes place. He was a farmer, a former Royal Air Force pilot, and a local magistrate at the Witham Magistrates Court. He was married to a woman named June. She was also 61 at the time of the case. She was born June 3, 1924. Their birthdays are so close. That's cute. They had married in 1949 and moved into the White House farm on Pages Lane. It sat on 300 acres of tenant farmland and had belonged to June's father. It was a Georgian-style building, an architectural style most common between 1714 and 1830. The couple couldn't have children of their own and adopted their children Sheila and Jeremy when they were babies. And I just want to note that Sheila and Jeremy weren't related. Jeremy was born on January 13, 1961, to a student midwife. Due to being conceived through an affair with a married man, she gave Jeremy up for adoption. The Bambers adopted him when he was about six months old. Jeremy was mischievous as a kid, as a lot of little boys are, and when he got older, he liked to party and have fun. But he worked with his adoptive dad a lot and helped him out with a lot of things with the farm. Sheila was born July 18, 1957. At the time that our case is, she's about 28 years old. She was born to an 18-year-old daughter of a senior chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He insisted that his daughter give the baby up for adoption. Sheila's birth name was Phyllis, but she was given up for adoption two weeks after her birth to the Church of England's Children's Society. She was then adopted from the Holy Innocent Sunnyside Nursery in Box Wiltshire by the Bambers and renamed Sheila Jean. June struggled with depression and was in a psychiatric hospital for a bit in 1955 and then again in 1958, some months after she had adopted Sheila. That second time she was admitted, she had received electroshock therapy. She ended up being treated again in 1982 by a psychiatrist who would later see Sheila, named Hugh Ferguson. 
The Bambers were doing well for themselves. They had a good home for their kids and they had a private education. They were financially well off with the farm. June was pretty religious and wanted her kids to follow those ideals. June and Sheila didn't have a very good relationship. June didn't approve of some of Sheila's behavior. June once caught Sheila and her boyfriend Colin sunbathing naked in a field. It was things like this that led to June calling Sheila a devil child, which later was identified as a trigger for some of Sheila's paranoid delusions. Sheila and Jeremy's relationship wasn't a whole lot better. They both had issues growing up in regards to being adopted, and while I'm not adopted so I can't fully speak to this, I can imagine that's not always the easiest thing to deal with no matter what your adoptive family situation is like. In 1977, Sheila married Colin Caffell. Sheila had studied to be a secretary and then trained as a hairdresser and even worked as a model with the Lucy Clayton Agency for a short period of time. She suffered two miscarriages before they had two twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas, on June 22, 1979. There are a lot of June birthdays in here. What's up with that? It was around this time that Colin started having an affair and left Sheila five months after the birth of their sons. This was obviously very upsetting for Sheila and only became increasingly more so. They divorced in 1982, and after the divorce, both parents remained involved in their son's raising. Also in 82, Sheila decided to trace back her birth mother, who she found living in Canada, and they ended up meeting in an airport, but the relationship never really developed, never really went anywhere. This is when she started hanging out with a group of young women. They would later say that Sheila was very insecure and talked about June's disapproval of her quite a bit. She was partying a lot, doing drugs, namely marijuana and cocaine. Her mental health was continuing to get worse. There were times when she would just bang her head against the walls. In 1983, she was referred to the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, Hugh Ferguson. He said that she was in an agitated state and was paranoid and schizophrenic. There were periods of time in 82 and 83 when her sons were placed in foster care due to Sheila's struggles with her mental health. By the time of this case, they had been living with Colin for a few months in his home that wasn't too far from Sheila's. There was a week-long visit to the White House farm planned in August, and Sheila and the boys would visit June and Neville, and then after that go on vacation with their father, Colin, to Norway. But when Colin dropped his sons off at the farm on August 4th, this was the last time he would see them alive. From what I read, the house was pretty tense. Neville and June had been talking to Sheila about her mental state and that she might not be in the best condition to continue raising the boys. And it's understandable that Sheila would be upset, especially when you consider that she had lost them before for periods of time. So on August 6, 1985, Jeremy had been helping out Neville outside. At one point, he took Neville's Anschutz 22 caliber rifle outside because he thought he heard rabbits. He then left the rifle on the kitchen table fully loaded and also left ammunition nearby. June, Sheila, and the boys went to town and then they met back up at the house for dinner. Jeremy ended up leaving around 9.30. At 3.26 on now August 7th, there's a call from Neville and the police are dispatched to the house at 3.35. 
At 3.36, Jeremy calls the police and says that Neville had called him saying that Sheila had gone berserk with a gun. He said the line went dead in the middle of the call, so the police dispatch another unit to the house. The police arrive at the farm and Jeremy arrives about 10 minutes after them. Some people thought this was weird because he only lived about three miles away and liked to drive pretty fast, according to some people, but who knows? It was the middle of the night. He might have been waiting for the police to arrive, or maybe it is suspicious. There are reports that say the police saw movement in the house and even saw lights turning on and off in the house. They call for armed police because I think over there not all police are just armed all the time. They arrive around 5 and Jeremy briefs them on the layout of the house so that they know at least kind of where they're going when they get in there. It's a pretty big house. At this point, they think there's someone still armed in there. They don't end up actually entering the house until around 7.30 and it's apparent that there was a struggle going on. On the first floor, they find Neville's body, who's been shot about 7-8 to eight times and was beaten pretty badly. There were also three circular burn marks on his back, and he was lying next to the fireplace. At about 8.10, they head upstairs and find June, who was found lying on the floor of her master bedroom by the door. She was shot seven times, two of the fatal shots being to the forehead and the right side of her head. The injuries suggested that she had been setting up at the time that she was shot. The boys, Daniel and Nicholas, were found in their beds in their room, and Daniel had been shot five times and Nicholas had been shot three times. All of these shots to everyone in the house had been either contact, so the gun pressed up against them, or from a point-blank range. I think all the shots that were fired were from less than two feet away. Sheila was found on the floor of the master bedroom with her mother with two bullet wounds in her neck area. The rifle was laying across her body, and there was an open Bible next to her. While both of her wounds were fatal, the pathologist stated that the first shot to the throat may not have immediately killed her, but the second shot that entered her brain definitely would have. Some more notes about the scene. The house was secured, the doors and windows were locked, and there are some details that are fuzzy because the police that went through that house did not really handle it properly. And there were a lot of people going in and out of the crime scene and not all of the police seemed like they were fully trained to handle this kind of situation. Which really sucks, but they also weren't used to dealing with a case like this. This wasn't a place where they had to deal with many murders at all, let alone one of this scale. They moved the murder weapon with no gloves and then tested it for prints a day later. They immediately started removing bloody carpeting and going through things, and removing and destroying things. There were some photos taken, but not a whole lot. They thought that this was a clear murder-suicide committed by Sheila. And keep in mind that Jeremy is there for this whole process with the police. So after the scene is cleared, families start going through some stuff in the house. I mean, they just get right in there, and they find a silencer in a cupboard with red paint on it on August 10th. During the trial, the silencer is shown, and the theory is that the red paint came from the mantle and must have scratched up against it during the struggle. And while I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence to support that the silencer was used, the prosecution maintained that it was and used this to say that there was no way that Sheila could have shot herself, because it was physically impossible for her to reach the trigger with the silencer on it 
the way that the wounds were inflicted. There was also the question of how could she put it in a cupboard if she was dead. Some other things that came up were not so good for Jeremy, and these came from his recent ex-girlfriend, Julie Mugford. Jeremy had broken up with her not too long after the murders, and she wasn't exactly too happy about it. In her statements to police, she maintained that Jeremy told her that he didn't like his family, that he wanted to kill them, that he tried to hire a hitman. And it also didn't help that not long after the murders, he was partying. Within a couple of days of the murders, he just seemed normal and happy, and some described him as having no emotion. And this could be incriminating, but on the other hand, you don't really know what you would act like after something like that. And everyone deals with it differently, but people were just very unsympathetic towards him. There was the motive that Jeremy would have to get rid of his family and then take his inheritance, which was quite a lot. If my calculations are correct, it was almost a million dollars plus the estate, which included a caravan business, buildings that his extended family were living on. I mean, he stood to gain a lot and also had the excuse of his crazy sister to point at. They did, I guess, get a hold of this hitman. I think he was a plumber for the family, and he had a pretty strong alibi, so they just kind of left that theory. In the trial, there were documents that didn't come out until later, as they were, for some reason, under a public interest immunity. So under the evidence that was presented, Jeremy ends up being found guilty, and he's put away for life. Some of the things in those documents that the jury didn't get to see contained things like that they didn't even know if the silencer was used. In fact, it probably wasn't. An investigator did tests using the rifle where he fired shots into a pig carcass, some with the silencer and some without, and all of the wounds documented at the scene were consistent with the bare barrel of the gun. We also remember who brought up the silencer was other family members. I think it was actually his cousin who found the silencer in the cupboard. The police didn't find this initially, but the crime scene was such a mess and they didn't do a good job of securing it, so we don't really know where it came from or if it was there all along. The extended family weren't exactly the biggest fans of Jeremy to begin with, plus the fact that he was adopted and they did not want to see him inherit everything that he likely would. It can be said that they had the same motive. They also stood to gain quite a bit, and don't think they liked the idea of Jeremy having so much control over the estate. I also mentioned Jeremy's girlfriend, Julie Mugford, who he had broken up with not long after the murders, and while he could have said these things to her about planning to kill his family, I'm not sure why you would tell her that and then dump her. Like, that doesn't seem like the smartest move to me. There are other reports of her having acted out towards him physically in the past out of anger. She also had some existing charges of her own, like possession of marijuana, and by cooperating as a witness, she doesn't really have to worry about those anymore. And then we also have the fact that Jeremy was outside with the police the whole time that they were waiting to enter the house that night. There were reports that didn't come out until later that stated that they were establishing contact with someone that was moving around in the house. And even that one of the officers, after entering the house and going up the stairs, heard movement and called out to them. I believe he was addressing Sheila to, you know, put down the weapon. They were in the house. They were coming up there. 
and it's apparent to the pathologist that she was the last to die. And even in the photos of her at the scene, which you can look up if you want to see them, her blood isn't even fully coagulated yet, which is odd given the length of time that it took them to enter the house from the time that they got there. So Jeremy, like I said, got a life sentence and has been unsuccessful with appeals, even with new evidence. I'm not entirely sure what to think. I don't think Jeremy did it, at least not himself, but I could see an argument really for either him having someone carry it out, Sheila actually being responsible. I could even see there being a possibility of a third party, which I suppose there is. I mean, anything is possible. But the house was so secure, I think it would have to be somebody who knew the house really well. But, I mean, we may never actually know who really did it, or maybe they have the right guy. Who knows? That is our case this week, and as always, you can pop over to the Instagram for pictures related to the case. I'll also probably be posting more updates and other stuff there. Um, as always, that's Murder Alphabet Soup Pod with underscores separating the words. Um, also feel free to, you know, leave some comments. Let me know what you think. Uh, thanks again for bearing with me while I kind of get my bearings back through this weird couple of weeks. And of course, as always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.